title of today's sermon is, Is He the One? And it's taken from Matthew 11, verses 1 through 15. Let's pray and ask God to guide us and instruct us through His Holy Spirit as we look at His Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the book of Matthew. We thank You for the many lessons that are in it. Help us, Father, not to be like the Jewish people, stiff-necked, who turned away from You and chose a different path. Help us to walk in the newness of life. Help us, Father, through your Spirit of God to be directed and to live lives that honor you and live in harmony with your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Did you ever ask the question as to who is the best at something? For example, who's the best cook or baker in your particular family? Trying to rank people against one another, especially historical figures, is, of course, subjective. We have the tendency to overrate those that we prefer and underrate others. This, is, of course, causes great debate. Being a sports fan, I like to debate, to debate such questions as, who's the greatest athlete of all time, or who's the greatest athlete in an individual sport? For instance, in my opinion, the greatest player that ever played baseball is Babe Ruth. No doubt about it. But then you could narrow the focus of that debate to who's the greatest pitcher or who is the greatest position player. Is it the greatest modern-day player or is it of the dead ball era? Do you consider those of the steroid era with the non-steroid? How about the question of the greatest boxer of all time? You'd have to take into consideration such things as wins and losses, world championships, quality of the opposition, and longevity. No matter how you slice it, no two people will ever have the same list. We could debate the greatest president, the greatest entrepreneur, or the greatest missionary. The question today is, who is the greatest prophet in the Bible? In this debate, most people would probably focus on such personalities as Moses or Samuel or perhaps even Elijah. Who do you say is the greatest prophet in the Bible? Well, if you have an idea, you can shoot me an email about that and I'll delete it. So then, the question we consider today is, who's the greatest prophet? Not from our perspective, but from the Lord Jesus's. And what does that mean to us today? As we return to our study in the book of Matthew, you'll recall that Jesus had just finished speaking to the 12 apostles. He was sending them out with the kingdom message to the cities of Israel. They, the 12, were to take his message that his kingdom was at hand to all of the members of the nation of Israel. In this text, Jesus corrects John, the baptizer, about present and future events. Well, with that, that with, our, with that as our introduction, I should say, would you turn with me then to our morning's text, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find our text on page 967. In this text, we have one of the major transitions in Matthew's gospel taking place. But first, before we get to that transition, let's look at the summary of Jesus' instruction to the twelve in verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to the twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their own cities. 
Isn't it amazing that Jesus doesn't send somebody out on a ministry task that he was not willing to do himself? He's finished instructing his disciples, his apostles, the twelve, to go out and to take the kingdom message, and he was going to do the same. This is the last time, however, you need to be aware of that the kingdom message, the kingdom of God is at hand, will be preached to the people of Israel. So, let me here, just for a moment, switch gears a bit. Let me give you a little bit of background about the politics of the day. As you'll recall, Herod the Great had been the ruler over the land of Israel, and then he died in about 34 A.D. The realm was then divided up amongst his four sons and several Roman governors. His son Antipas was the one who was put in charge of ruling over the region called the Galilee. Antipas traveled one day on an official trip to Rome, and while he was there, he naturally met up his, with his brother, who was also a ruler over part of Israel. And as brothers will, they fellowshiped together, they had a good time together. Well, when people are in Rome, they do as people do in Rome. Antipas seduced his brother's wife. And upon returning to the Galilee, Antipas divorced his own wife in order to marry the sister-in-law. Sounds a bit like a soap opera on TV today, doesn't it? Well, John the baptizer comes out of the desert and rails against Herod's immorality. By the way, this is the same Herod Antipas who will interview Jesus before he is put to death in just a few months. So John continues to rebuke Herod Antipas for his sin against his brother, against his sister-in-law, and against God himself. This would be like yours truly railing against the governor of of Washington State for dumping his wife to marry his brother's sister. As you know, it's never a good idea to ridicule a despot. Antipas, seeking revenge, had John arrested. As you can see in the pictures behind me, John was arrested and placed in a mountain prison near the Dead Sea. This fortress had been built by Herod the Great as a safe place for him to retreat to in case an enemy attacked his kingdom. It's located in what is now modern-day Jordan. I've never been there. It was a terrible place, though, for an outdoor man like John to be imprisoned below ground for several months. I think there's a picture of the, the place that John was put there. Did you get that in? While there, John received reports about the activities of Jesus taking place in the region of the Galilee. And now in verse 2, we see John the baptizer's concerns. You can go back to the outline. Now, when John was imprisoned, we read in verse 2, he heard about the works of Jesus and as they were sent to him by his disciples. John's existing in this hole in the ground in modern-day Georgia, in the fortress of Macarius, and he learns about the great and miraculous things that Jesus is doing in the Galilee. Now, as you know, in the previous months, John had been proclaiming Jesus to be the expected one, the one who will take away the sins of the world, said John, the one who was coming to be the anointed one of Israel. He had expectations of what Jesus would do. Back in chapter 
3 of this same book, we read in verse 11 what John said. He said, well, I baptize you with water for a repentance or change of mind, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now listen to this. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. These words speak of judgment by the expected one coming to Israel that John is proclaiming. Jesus is the warrior king that's going to come and set Israel free of its oppressors. He's bringing with him his winnowing fork, and he will burn the wicked with unquenchable fire. John's view of the Messiah is that he is coming as a righteous judge and a king who will reign over Israel. He'll deal with the wicked, he'll establish the Davidic throne, and he will kick the Romans out of their precious land. Well, John's now suffering away in the prison, put there by an illegal potentate named Herod Antipas. And yet, John, we know, was the forerunner of the Messiah. But now, because of all that has been taking place, he begins to experience some doubts about the king's identity. Obviously, one of the causes of those doubts had to be his imprisonment. But as John doubted because of his imprisonment, it became an impetus for Jesus to take up the baton of John and to continue with the program that John had previously announced. All that Jesus said and did was being observed by John's disciples, who then returned to where John is in prison and dutifully report back to him all that they were seeing and hearing. This caused John's expectations to ebb and flow, to be raised one moment and dashed the next. He'd hoped in his heart of hearts that he'd soon be released in order to continue on with his ministry to the people of Israel. But then there was this long period of dry Lack of progress in Jesus dealing with what John thought he should be doing. Dealing with Rome. Dealing with sinful Israel. And this produced all sorts of internal questions in John's mind. It was these unfulfilled expectations about Jesus that was the genesis of his own question. We find in verse 3. There John asked Jesus through his disciples this. Are you... The expected one. Or shall we look for someone else? As you know, John, a condemned man, unlike Bergdahl, John was executed. Therefore, he couldn't be wrong about Jesus. He had to be sure, and hence the question Are you the Messiah? Now, this was a very logical question, I think at least to ask in light of John's expectations. He had every reason to believe, based on the commonly held expectations of every Jew, that Jesus would come as the expected one, as the promised Messiah, as the Davidic king, and that he would free Israel of Roman domination and establish his kingdom. John was puzzled why none of these expectations were being fulfilled. So he questions Jesus, are you the one that we've been expecting? He questions Jesus' identity. He wanted Jesus to 
clarify for him once and for all that he was the one that they were looking for. Now, I believe John's uncertainty about Jesus' Jesus' identity arose out of his confinement and and out of these unfulfilled expectations. Why hadn't Jesus rescued him from prison? And why hadn't he dealt with Rome? If you are the coming one, if you are in the Davidic line, if you are going to establish your kingdom, and if I am your messenger, then why am I still imprisoned? So the key to understanding this text in John's question is at the phrase that we look at next. Shall we look for someone else? That's what it says in the New American Standard. The Greek word translated there as someone else could also be translated just as well as another, as some of your texts probably say. Jesus then, in essence, is asking, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for another? Now, that's not as plain as the known as on your face in English as it is in Greek. There are two Greek words that could be translated as someone else or another. These two Greek words have connotations that are quite different from one another. The subtext to the words is quite different. One suggests another of the same kind. That was the word that Jesus used when he said, He shall give you another comforter. The Holy Spirit was of the same kind as Jesus. The second Greek word that's found here in the text that Jesus uses means of a different kind. The idea then that John was suggesting is that should we be looking for one of a different kind than you, Jesus? So, when John's in prison and his disciples come and talk to him, he asks them to go back to Jesus and ask him that question. He's also probably concerned about his own disciples who were having questions about Jesus. John's message, however explains everything to us that we need to know about Jesus in these circumstances. John's message, the one I just read for you previously from Matthew 3, is a message of doom and gloom. Divine fire is about to fall on the wicked. The winnowing fork is coming out and Jesus is going to separate the chaff and he's going to burn it with unquenching fire. He's asking Jesus, when are the infidels going to be burned alive? In essence. When will you deal with those Romans? I think John is really asking, when is the day of the Lord going to begin? Maybe John's becoming a little bit impatient with Jesus. He's not who he expected him to be. One of the clues here is in the title, The Expected One. This was a familiar appellation given to the anticipated Messiah. So John confuses, or at least has a lack of understanding, that Jesus will come twice That Jesus will come twice. In his first coming, Jesus is going to come and die for the sins of all mankind. In his second coming, he will come with unquenching fire and his winnowing fork. I thought I'd hear an amen there, but you guys are slow of heart today. 
John had anticipated this first coming himself when he said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But he's really anticipating that Jesus will come with fire and brimstone and bring it down upon the enemies of Israel. You see, John missed the big picture. He missed the two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He missed the fact that Israel would reject Jesus as their king which would be a postponement of his millennial kingdom, his earthly reign. All of that wouldn't happen until his second coming. John's question reveals his doubt, his uncertainty, and his lack of understanding of biblical text. Yes, he's heard all about the miracles of Jesus, but that doesn't convince him about who he thought Jesus is and what he should be doing. While these miraculous signs certainly validated the person and works of Jesus, it was not the Messiah that John was preaching. Somehow, he even missed what it said in the book of Psalms, in the book of Habakkuk. In Psalms, we read, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who comes in the name of the Lord. We have been blessed We have been blessed from the house of the Lord. And then in Habakkuk, when the prophet said this, This vision is for the future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it, for it surely will take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous ones will live by their faithfulness to God. Jesus was and is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord, and in the end he will fulfill all of these predictions and prophecies about the Messiah. But there are two comings. And this causes John to be confused about the identity of Christ. And he fails to connect the dots that we find in the Old Testament, the specific prophecies about this. Well, Jesus seeks to assure John, as we see in verse 4, and his followers, that he is truly the expected one. Jesus answers them saying, Go and report to John what you hear and see. My dear ones, it's worthy to note from this text that our faith does not rest on our faith. It's not faith in faith. No, we are to trust in the person and the works of Jesus, in what he has actually done. Jesus challenges John's disciples as eyewitnesses to the things that he had been doing in Galilee, the things that they had seen and heard, to understand that he was who he said he was. His miracles validate his person. The evidence of his divinity was overwhelming and should clarify in their mind who he was. Well, what is it that they saw and heard? What was it that Jesus said and did? He taught unbelievable things that went against the teaching of the day. He did unbelievable things that only God could do. This reminds me of another text. Maybe you're familiar with it. John wrote in his first epistle, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, this. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have seen and heard. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This is the one 
who is life itself, who was revealed to us. We have seen him, and now we testify, we proclaim to you that he is the one who brings eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he revealed to us. He was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves actually saw and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things. We are writing these things to you so that you may fully share our joy. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you. Jesus is saying, go back to the baptizer, but don't tell him what I am saying. Tell him what I'm doing. Don't tell John what I'm claiming. Tell him what is happening. We need to believe this today. We need to understand this today. We don't judge Jesus' qualifications to be who he said he is as much by his words as by his deeds. I don't believe Jesus necessarily because of doctrine. I believe it because he died for me. What he did, he died for me on the cross of Calvary and he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. Don't believe in Jesus just because of one sentence he said somewhere. You can misconstrue, you can misunderstand. Believe because of what he did. He died in your place. He did it for you, he did it for me, and he's done it for so many others. I don't judge Donald Trump by his stupid tweets. I judge him by what he is doing for our country. He's anti-abortion. If that isn't enough for you to support Trump, I don't know what is. The Democrats want to kill everybody. Oh, all of a sudden got quiet. More people died from abortion in the United States five times more than died in the Holocaust. That's a stain on humanity. It's a stain on the soul of the church. We should be standing up with one voice and saying, Stop! 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 Stop killing people! Is it any different sticking them in a gas chamber than ripping their heads and arms off out of a mother's wombs? I say it is not. Don't judge someone by their words. Judge them by their actions. What did Jesus do? He died for you and for me. He took our place on a cruel cross to die a horrible death that you and I might live. In verse 5, we get some of the specifics of Jesus' works. He says, look and see what I've done. I've healed the blind. I've made the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are the specific messianic signs found in the Old Testament as stated by the prophets. Jesus specifically mentions healing of the blind, the lame, and the deaf. All which he had done previously as we've just studied in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. This is a direct statement by Jesus to the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 29, 35, and 61. From Isaiah we learn this. I'm going to read them to you quickly. The day of the deaf will hear, says Isaiah. The blind will see, the humble will be filled with joy, and the poor will receive the Holy One of Israel. 
Later on, he urges Israel to be strong. Do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open up the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap with a, like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams with water in the wasteland. There it is. The expected one. What does he do? He heals people of infirmities. He makes the lame to walk, the dumb to speak, the blind to see, and the deaf to hear. Finally, in Isaiah 61, a key passage about the expected one, we read that the Messiah will be affirmed by the Spirit of the Lord because he is upon me, says Isaiah about the coming Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And later, he says that he will preach the good news to the poor. That's what Isaiah said about the expected one. And Jesus did all of those things. I find it significant that Jesus did not attempt to answer the underlying question that the baptizer had, which was, why hasn't the judgment begun upon wicked Israel and our Roman oppressors? When Jesus assures John here that he comes as the expected one, not to bring the winnowing fork, but to bring blessing for the people of God, Jesus validates all this by showing John from the prophets in the Old Testament that he's fulfilling the messianic prophecies about him. He asserts that his messianic purpose from the beginning was different than people's expectations. John was looking for the wrong kind of evidence rather than what the Old Testament prophets had said. Jesus shows John that the sinners will be forgiven, that the sick will be healed, and that God will help all those people who seek him. Jesus asserts that John should be assured of who he is by his person and his works, his miraculous signs. This is a statement of fact about the person of Christ and the Messiah. The nation needs to accept him as their king based upon the truth of the Old Testament. He is the expected one. Now in verse 6 we read that the one who does not the one who does receive him I should say is blessed he who does not take offense at me. So then John are you offended by me in a sense is what Jesus is asking him. Well the truth is a lot of people are offended by Jesus aren't they? It's interesting that Jesus uses a very specific Greek word here in this text. To take offense. In the Greek is the term scandalon, which means to stumble over or trip upon. People will then and now stumble over and trip on the teaching and the works of Jesus. The Jewish people in Jesus' day stumble over Christ. They trip on his teaching They trip on his miracles. Now this word, this Greek word, is being used figuratively. That is to speak of something that makes faith difficult. 
John was stumbling over Jesus because he didn't measure up to John's expectations. He expected the coming one to overthrow Rome. But Jesus came as a humble teacher and healer who would die in mankind's place. So the works and words of Jesus challenged John's presuppositions and those of the Jewish people. They, like John, were confused. Now, the only way to resolve that confusion was to embrace Christ as the expected one. But they stumbled over him. They stumbled over his, their own presuppositions. Is that true today? Of course it is, isn't it? Most people have the presupposition that if they pray, they're going to get something, don't they? Well, I prayed about that. It didn't happen. Most people stumble over the fact that if they turn to God in their most desperate of circumstances, that God is somehow going to get them out of that foxhole. Right? Like God's some kind of a lucky charm or a magic lantern that you just rub and he answers. We all have all sorts of presuppositions about God. Why didn't the Lord save my husband? He was a good man. Why didn't the Lord... Save my child who got a terrible disease and passed. So on and so forth. We all have those presuppositions. Our minds and thinking should be in a line and in harmony with Scripture, not the presuppositions of our surrounding culture. Jesus came the first time to die as a substitute for mankind. Now next we see Jesus' evaluation of John the baptizer as a prophet. Who is the greatest prophet of all time, I asked as we began? No doubt, none of us probably would have answered John the Baptist. And yet, Jesus is going to affirm that. Jesus poses three questions about John and then gives us three answers that show him to be the greatest. The first question is in verse 7. We read there. As these men, that's the disciples of John, were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John, that is, the baptizer. Why did you go out into the wilderness? Excuse me. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And then the answer. A reed shaken by the wind? The first reason John the baptizer is to be esteemed as the greatest is John was strong and courageous. We see here as John's disciples are walking away, Jesus turns to the crown, crown, he asks them this question, why did you guys go out into the desert to see John anyway? What was in your minds? The question is simple. Why did you go, what did you go out to see in the desert? These ordinary people flocked out into the wilderness where it's hot and dry And there's nothing. And to hear this wild man railing against the government, against sin, against their own religious system. Why did you go out there? You could have gone to the Jordan River that day and played in the cool waters and seen the reeds blowing in the wind. If you'll notice on the slides behind me, that's the wilderness where we went in the Judean desert just a few months ago. Uh, I think you were there with us, Bill, a couple years ago. You can see it's dry, desolate, a horrible place. But then we went to the Jordan River. You can see the reeds that surround the river. We were there for a baptism, and it was wonderful. John says, Jesus says, why did you go out to see John in the middle of the, the desert? 
Why didn't she go to the river and watch the reeds blow in the wind? But the reeds are being used figuratively here of a man who's vacillating and weak. John was not that. He was strong and courageous. John was not like the shaking of the reeds in the wind. He was out in the middle of the desert where no one would go. He was strong and courageous and able to face the wilds that nature has to offer. The people flocked out there not to see a weak, vacillating man, but a strong and courageous man that does not bow to the whims of the religious elites in Jerusalem. He wasn't a coward. He stood against the government of his day. He proclaimed Herod to be a hypocrite and immoral. John was not any ordinary man but an extraordinary man of God who stood against the powers of both the government and religion. John was a man of strength, character, and conviction. Everything all right, Sue? Okay. So, did they go out to hear some man give a politically correct speech to mimic the celebrities of their day? To please the people? No. They went out to see John. He wasn't out there to build his own religious kingdom or to feather his nest for the future. May it never be. John was a man of God who couldn't be shaken by the winds of doctrine or convenience. He was a man of biblical convictions, and he didn't seek fame, celebrity, or luxury. John was a willing servant of God to suffer the violence that would come upon him for doing so. Jesus asks in verse 8 the second question. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. John was courageous and John was not self-indulgent. He wasn't some religious shyster trying to get money out of the people's. He didn't want to exchange his philosophy for the cash that they had in their pockets. Jesus asked this question, and I think it's a bit sarcastic. What did you really expect to see out there? A man in soft clothing? Obviously, the answer to that would be no. In John's day, only the religious phonies wore fine clothes. They did so to show off their wealth and their their place in society. John was not trying to steal anybody's money or anybody's success. He was living out in the wilderness, eating the vegetation that was available out there, wearing rough clothing. He was all alone so that he would not be polluted by the religious culture around him. John wouldn't even go directly to the people. He called them to come out to him in the wilds of the desert. He was not a man of wealth, and prestige. He was a man of poverty and little. He didn't dress like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he didn't believe like they believed. He was not one of them. And yet, he was the king's emissary. Still, he didn't dress like a king's emissary. John was not a fake like those whom he addressed, chastised, and railed against. John was not seeking to climb the ladder of success. He didn't try to flatter the king. He told the king the hard truths. John spoke truth to power. As an ambassador of God, John was an outspoken critic of Herod, and it would cost him 
his life. John followed in the footsteps of all the other Old Testament prophets who were either beheaded, sawn in half, or killed by their own brothers. Now the third question, the last question, John asked the crowd about, Jesus asked the crowd about John, is in verse 9. And in doing so, he states unequivocally that John was the greatest prophet. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, one who is more than a prophet. The question is, was John just a prophet? No. John was the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus. He was a messenger of God for the expected one. Again, Matthew stated in John chapter 3 and verse 1 that Jesus, excuse me, that John was a voice crying out in the wilderness about the expected one's appearance. Technically, John is the last prophet of the Old Testament, and he belongs to the dispensation of the law, not to the age of grace. As an Old Testament prophet, as a man of God, as a righteous man, John was unequaled in his time. The reasons for his greatness are many and varied. Jesus states clearly that John was more than a prophet, What did you go out to see, a prophet? No, he's more than a prophet. Jesus uses the Greek word here, peristeron, which is translated in some texts as much more. In Malachi chapter chapter 3 and verse 1, the Lord says through Malachi, Look, I am sending my messenger. He will prepare for me the way. And then the Lord whom you are seeking suddenly will come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you so eagerly await is surely coming, says the Lord. This is John. John is the greatest because he was more than a prophet, because he introduced Israel to its Messiah King. A prophet, as you know, is a messenger that bears the words of God to his people. But John had the opportunity to be the messenger of the king's coming. He opened the way. He prepared the way for Christ to come. So John is much more than a regular prophet. He was the greatest prophet of all. This leads me to the point. The Jews had and still have one settled belief about this one who will come and open the way for the Messiah. And that is, right before the Messiah comes, Elijah will announce his return. To this day, Jews celebrate on the Passover by leaving a vacant seat at the table for Elijah, just in case he comes on that day. Now, this belief didn't just come out of thin air. Their belief does come from the scriptures, in particular two verses in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where the Lord says, Look, look, I'm sending to you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers and their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So their belief is based on the very last two verses of the Old Testament. But Jesus is going to assert here. Jesus is going to say that John was the Elijah that was prophesied to come. He was the Elijah prophesied to come by Malachi. 
So the question is, how did John fulfill that expectation of the Elijah who was to come? Luke tells us. Straightforward, straight out in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, we read that John the baptizer came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was a figure, a metaphor of Elijah. John the baptizer was Elijah in oh so many ways. He was like Elijah in their place of ministry, in their mode of ministry, and even in personal lifestyle. For example, in 2 Kings, we read that the king of Judah sent for Elijah to come, here, come to him, and he asked his advisors, what sort of man was Elijah? What does he look like? And they replied, he's a hairy man, and he wears a leather belt around his waist. You see, Elijah stood in stark contrast to those prophets who serve Baal in the king's court. Elijah came from the desert in Tishbe. Elijah wasn't dressed for success. He had the appearance of a mountain man, much like me. He was hairy with a leather belt around his waist. That was a joke. When people saw Elijah, they knew it was him. He had a distinctive look and manner, completely contrary to the priests who served Baal and served the Jewish king who was worshiping hard places. They wore fine linen gowns. They had high-pointed hats. And they dined on the delicacies at the king's palace. Elijah was a man of poverty. He didn't have material things. He lived a separated world from the, a lifestyle from the world. He ate what was out in the desert. Who does that sound like to you? Doesn't that sound a lot like John the Baptist? Matthew describes him as wearing clothes that were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. Duh! And he ate locusts and honey. John was figuratively, metaphorically, however you want to say it, he was the reincarnation in a sense, if you will, prophetically, of Elijah. But John was greater. John was greater. It's interesting that Elijah never died, but was translated directly to heaven by a chariot in a whirlwind. You remember that, right? Again, from 2 Kings, this time chapter 2, verse 1. As Elijah and Elisha walked and talked, a chariot of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. <clears throat> this, in a sense, is the return of Elisha, except in the flesh of John the Baptist. So Jesus declares John to be greater than every other prophet of any age up to that point. Jesus however, does not say or intimate that John had greater character or eloquence or speech. No, Jesus says that John was greater because he was the forerunner of the king. Verse 10, look with me there. This is the one whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John fulfilled Malachi's expectation and statement of a coming Elijah, and he did it in his power and in his spirit. He was the one predicted by Malachi. He was sent to open the way for Jesus. He heralded him, heralded him, saying, Here is the king to Israel. Here is your king. Are you ready? Accept him. And in verse 11, Jesus gives us his divine opinion of John the baptizer. Truly, truly I say unto you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. 
And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What in the world does that mean? As I've said, this answers the question, at least from a divine point of view, about who is the greatest prophet. It wasn't Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or Moses, or Elijah, or Samuel, or anyone else. Jesus declares that one to be John. He was greater than all other people ever born of a woman to that day. John was a unique person in a unique position with a unique opportunity. That is what made him the greatest prophet. We see this evaluation of those in his future kingdom here, though, when Jesus says that they will be greater than John. The least will be greater than John. Here we have a clear distinction in dispensations. If you haven't believed in dispensations before, you need to get on board the train right now. Here it is. Jesus is drawing a stark contrast between the Jews who lived at that time under the dispensation of the law to those who will live in the millennial kingdom. Let's examine this verse and please remember As a subtext to all of this, no Jew, pious Jew, would ever say the name of God. Mm. Mm. They won't do it to today. If you go look at any Jewish websites, there's dot, 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 or G, dot, 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 D. They will not say. So when Jesus said he is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is saying the kingdom of God. He's substituting heaven for God. He's talking about his future thousand-year reign, is he not? He's not reigning now, is he? Jesus is no over in Jerusalem. Did you see him when you were there? Reigning? No, I didn't. Did, did, Kayla, did you see him? I didn't see him. Jesus is not reigning over the world, is he? But he will sometime soon. Reign for a thousand years over this world. Those in the coming millennial kingdom will be greater than John. That's what Jesus is saying here. Even the least in the kingdom will be greater than John. Why? 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 Well, the reason for that is simple. They will be citizens of his kingdom. John had the great joy, the great privilege of announcing that kingdom, but he never got to enjoy it. John ministered outside the kingdom. And his level of greatness was over all those of his dispensation, but he can't measure up to those who will be members of the kingdom. Why is that? Well, John was a great man, a humble man, an outspoken man of God, and willing to risk his life, but he was not sin-free. Those in the kingdom will have no sin nature. They will be totally sin-free. There's a time coming when there will be no sin nature to deal with, and that is the millennial kingdom age, when Christ will rule over all those who are righteous completely in nature. Jesus died. John never had the opportunity to see the cross. John never had the opportunity to receive full redemption offered by Christ when he arose from the grave. He tasted, stop that, he tasted of the holiness of God, but never fully knew it. John proclaimed the justice of God, but he has to wait to the Bema seat to see it full. Now, if you listen to the message of John, if you listen to the message of John, which most of evangelicalism does not, 
If you listen to his message, no one would ever theologically connect the message of John with the message of grace. John preached a threat. A message of coming destruction. I hear it from people I've had someone here three weeks ago who argued with me about this. John is not preaching the message of grace. He's preaching the message of the winnowing fork and the fires of unquenchableness of God coming down and destroying people. That's not the message of grace, is it? John did not preach the gospel message that you and I do. He preached the message of repent, change your mind about your behavior. To Israel, to Israel, to Israel, not to people today. John was saying a message of destruction is coming upon you, and as the forerunner of the king who stood outside the realm of the kingdom. He was the one of the last uh, prophets of the old dispensation. He is identified here as Elijah himself. However, now to be clear, be crystal clear, Jesus is not in any way demeaning John as a man nor a prophet. Jesus is considering the greatness of John in a different age with the greatness of those who will be in his kingdom. The law stinks compared to the age of grace when Christ is ruling from Jerusalem. Clearly, that's the meaning of verse 12. Look with me there. One of the most confusing verses in Scripture to people. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven, what is that? The kingdom of God, suffers violence and violent men take it by force. What does that mean? This is one of those hard sayings. It's difficult to interpret. It contains the Greek word bizomai, which is translated as suffer violence. What it means is that the kingdom of God will suffer violence until now. If you look at that behind me, you can see that it's the speaking of the kingdom of God or the rule of God. Violent attack upon the rule of God. Who is in charge of this world? Let me again say that this differs with my Calvinistic brothers who see the sovereignty of God under every rock. The truth is, the scripture says that Satan is the prince in the power of the air. He's in charge of this world. Just look at what goes on around you. If God was in charge, do you think we'd have all the troubles that we have? There's a violent attack going on. I've got to settle down here. There's a violent attack against the rule of God. To this day, the gospel of Christ suffers violence. It's attacked by violent men, is it not? Literally, I know people that have preached the gospel and been attacked for it physically. If Jesus was hated, don't you think you'll be hated? If you preach the gospel... Don't you think you'll be attacked? You will be, if not physically, verbally. If not verbally, fellowship-wise, you'll be shunned by people. When the truth of God is promoted, it's opposed. Look at the attack that John the Baptist had for telling the truth about Herod the Antipas. He was not only attacked, he was arrested and killed. I'd say that's opposing the kingdom of God, wouldn't you? 
In verse 13, we read again of this dispensational distinctive when it says, Violent men take it by force, for all the prophets and the Lord prophesied about this, if you will, until John. (coughs) John's appearance on the national stage was a key turning point in the life of Israel. It was the end of one era and the beginning of another. Upon John's arrival, the Old Testament end ended. The error ended, and a new one began. John, as the prophet, brought all of the teaching of the prophets of the age that had just gone by to a crescendo. His prophetic voice out in the wilderness shouted the same message from Malachi, from Moses to Malachi. All of them predicted the coming of the Messiah. But John had the unique role of saying, It is here Get in line, boys. The king has come. He's waiting to be embraced and accepted. This announcement was a deal breaker for the Jews, for they remained committed to their religious works, to their fake righteousness. They chose their practices, which they worshiped over the God who loved them. Now, we find a caveat to all of this in verse 14 for the Jews. When, John, when Jesus states that this, his coming, the message John preached and all the other prophets, if they accept it, he will rule. That's what's being stated here. And in verse 14, he says, if they are willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. He's giving them one last chance to accept the message of Elijah that the day of the Lord will come. As you know, Elijah's coming, even for the Jews, preceded the day of the Lord. So figuratively, metaphorically, they are to embrace the offer that Jesus is bringing for him to be king over Israel. Would they embrace that? Would they accept it? Were they willing to accept it? Obviously, as we know, they were not. Israel rejects both John and Jesus. Both are killed. Violence in the kingdom, against the kingdom. Thus, they reject the kingdom of God. And it is put on hiatus. A parenthesis takes place. There's an old proverb that I think speaks about the Jews at this time. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. God sent his messengers, one after the other, to Israel, offering them himself if they would just embrace him. And Israel kept on rejecting the Lord, even to the last man whom the Lord sends in John, and they kill him. Remember remember Jesus taught a parable about that? Referring to himself? The revelation of God is powerless unless a man respond to it. The revelation of God is powerless unless you respond to it. The revelation of God is powerless unless you respond to it. Thus, Jesus ends his appeal to Israel, admonishing them with these words, He who has ears, let him hear. As you know, the Lord was silent for four centuries Four centuries, 400 long years passed between Malachi and John's appearance on the public stage in the desert of Judea. Isn't it ironic that when Jesus 
didn't fulfill the notions of the people about what they wanted as a king, they reject him. Do you remember Saul? Saul was what the people wanted. Somebody tall and handsome, like Bill Mann. Not short and squat and fat like me. They had their expectations of what they wanted as a pastor. I mean, as a prophet, right? They should have learned from that lesson. They rejected Jesus as the king because it's not what they wanted. Not because of what the scripture said. Our Lord taught many things that are hard to swallow. Hard sayings. And the Jews rejected the kingdom that was promised because of their own expectations. I believe Jesus taught this way in order to sift those, the hard sayings, sift those people from one another. There's a question that naturally arises from this teaching that we find here. And that is about these dispensations of grace and the law. If Israel had accepted Christ at his first coming, would God have established Christ's kingdom immediately? The short answer to that is yes. But then many would ask, how can that possibly be? Well, I don't really have any satisfying answers to skeptics about this. I just know that it is true. It is what Jesus said. I don't need to explain it. I need to accept it. He does a lot of things that are hard to explain, but must be accepted. Hardline Calvinists and Reformed people then argue, well then, if Jesus' intentions were all along to go to the cross as our substitute and die for the sins of mankind, then his offer to be the king of Israel wasn't sincere at all, was it? And I say to that, May it never be. God cannot lie. He can't offer something unless it's totally sincere. Otherwise, that would make Jesus a liar. The critics will then say, okay then, what if Israel had accepted Jesus as their king? And at this point, I just have to say, there's a lot of if questions in this world. Some I can answer and some I cannot. The Jews rejected Jesus and continue to do so today. Don't you reject Christ. Don't you reject Christ. Accept his offer of salvation as a free gift. It costs you nothing. You don't have to change a thing in your life. He'll change it later on. But to be saved, to be justified, there aren't any if questions. Is it, it is, will you embrace Christ? Will you accept him? Will you trust in him as your Savior? He died for you. He proved it by his works. He died from you and he rose from the grave. Do you believe it? Do you accept it? Do you embrace it? Or do you reject him? There's a lot of iffy questions about the scriptures, about life. I don't get into a lot of arguments about iffy questions. Life's too short and there's too many hypothetical ones. I say... Trust Christ and get out there. Preach the gospel. Share the change that Christ brought to your life when he saved you. Just as Bill and Kathleen have done in Bolivia. Do it in your own backyard. 
Share it with your neighbors. Share it with your friends. Most assuredly, share it with your family. Christ loves them and died for them. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that Jesus Christ did what he did. And no one can change that. They might argue against it. They might not believe it. They might reject it. But we, the faithful, know that Christ Jesus died so that we might have life. That he rose again to give us the abundant life. Help us to live in light of that truth. Help us to glorify our Savior, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.